If you would open your copy of the scriptures and join me in John chapter 2 this morning, we're going to look at this entire chapter, and I'm really thankful that we get the opportunity to see uh, a, a very common occurrence, a wedding, and we see how Jesus was like all of us. There's obligations, right, for weddings. You show up when you're invited, and so it's kind of a day in the life of Jesus. I remember August the 4th, 1995. Where were you then? I was looking at a milkshake spilled all over the foyer of a floor in a church in which the next morning my wife and I were going to get married. Stress. One of my groomsmen opened the door for my sister and didn't notice the little door stop that allowed it to only open so far. So she's walking through. He grabbed it and flung it open. It bounces out of his hands, and it hits her, and the milkshake goes everywhere. And we're laughing. What else do you do? Not my lovely bride. She was not having that. It was wedding stress, right? And some of us, there are going to be a couple weddings. Some families in this church have some daughters getting married this summer. Weddings are a lot of work. you got to pick the right venue. got to have the right food and music. you got to have the perfect number of guests and the the lines of the bride and groom who's standing with them has to be evenly matched. And it's all this thought, all this preparation. And then you got the decor and the all that. And then there is the final day of preparation, that final push to see these two become one. We don't have a lot of information about Jesus' childhood, but here in John 2, we're given a glimpse into a very normal experience. According to chapter 2 and verse 1, it was three days after the events that took place the end of chapter 1, when Jesus met and recruited Philip, and then met Nathaniel. So as I read this chapter, I invite you to follow along in your copy of the Scriptures, and please hear God's Word from John chapter 2, which is page 887. If you don't have a Bible, there's blue Bibles in the chairs in front of you. You're welcome to open that up and turn to page 887. You'll be right along with us. We preach from the Word, and so we encourage our members and guests to open the Word so you know that what you're hearing is truly from the Scriptures and not the thoughts of anybody up here. Follow along. Uh, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water pots there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, 
And then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem and in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was talking, speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. For he himself knew what was in man. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. And may he write its truths upon our hearts. Lord, we ask simply for understanding. These two scenes and these two signs are very significant. So help us not just to learn data about this, but to understand the significance behind it. Bring life to us. Bring an understanding that it is you to whom the scriptures point to. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to give you the big idea of what I see between these two scenes and these two signs. And it's this. Jesus will give abundant joy to those who embrace his cleansing. Jesus will give abundant joy. We see that in verses 1 through 12. Wine is a symbol of joy. And 150 gallons of wine, that's a lot of joy. Okay, We'll get to that in a moment. He's not encouraging drunkenness. Jesus will give abundant joy to those who embrace his cleansing. That cleansing comes in verses 13 through 25 of the temple. And so what seems to us initially as two random passages, oh yeah, there's a great story here about Jesus turning water into wine, but then John quickly jumps to Jesus cleansing a temple. What do they have in common? Why did he just put them there? We see that John is first showing us Jesus' power 
to bring joy into the world. As you look at verses 1 through 5, we see a wedding disaster. Running out of wine could be explained by the fact that Jewish weddings could last sometimes up to a week. How's that for your planning? And in fact, it wasn't the bride's parents that were on the hook for the expenses. It was all for the bridegroom, which might have delayed a lot of marriages, right? If you're going to have a party that lasts a week, and you could have dozens and dozens of guests there, sponging off of you with food and drink, you're going to have to save up a lot of pennies to pay for that. And in their culture of shame, to run out before the feast ended would be more than embarrassing. It actually could prompt a lawsuit from the bride's family, and it did. Can you imagine that? And we thought our, we had problems, right, in our culture. So there's a real problem here, and it prompts Mary in the third verse to come to Jesus. Now, what, what's going on? Why is Mary telling Jesus? Let's just think about this very simply. No doubt, weddings, if you're invited to a wedding, you're either family or friend. Mary was probably there to help host it and cater it and to make sure that all the things were in order and the decor was there and the food was set out at the right time and when it ran out to replenish it. And she comes to Jesus and she says, we need some help here. Why did she ask Jesus? Was she expecting him to do what he did? I don't think so at all. If you, if you know your Bible, um, in the other gospel accounts, we're told that Jesus had a father who was a carpenter. His name was Joseph. Now, he was his stepdad because his father is the father of all creation. So Jesus, Joseph kind of disappears off the scene after Jesus has this adventure of staying, hanging out in the temple after his parents left. So we would assume Joseph has passed away. Mary has come to rely on her oldest son as the head of the household. She is so accustomed to Jesus taking care of the family. Now, mind you, Joseph's there when Jesus is 12, and we don't see or hear of Joseph again. He didn't abandon the family because it's clear they had a lot of kids together. So I think Joseph is, is gone. He's gone to heaven, and he is no longer on the scene. And for decades, Jesus has been taking the responsibility to provide for his family. So his mother naturally says, son, I need you to get us out of this jam. You and your disciples, maybe, you need to go find some wine really quick or something. This is a problem. She's trying to avoid embarrassment to the family or to a friend. Given that it's Mother's Day, let's slow down for a moment to just address a couple things here. Because some of us as kids who have a little bit of a twisted sense of humor may walk home and say, woman, that's not. Uh, we need to unpack this, okay? So as you look back to what Jesus says to his mother, look at verse 4. When he learns they have no wine, he said to her, woman, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, you could put a lot of inflection on that word woman, and it's really, we're not helped a whole lot by some attempts to make it sound like Jesus was super gentle. Uh, I don't think he was being disrespectful. I don't think that at all. In fact, um, as you look at other passages of Scripture, Jesus is hanging on the cross in John 19 and verse 26, and he sees his mother. And this one who has been the head of household for decades 
is intentional about securing her future when he's gone. And he says to her, when he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son, pointing to John. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Jesus will use this same expression later when Mary Magdalene doesn't recognize him at the garden after he is resurrection, resurrected from the tomb and she believes he's a gardener and he turns to her and he says, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? In other words, I think Jesus wasn't using this like, woman, exasperated. Rather, it was more of what you might hear in the South, a respectful Ma'am, or maybe woman, dear, dear woman, as the New Living Translation works at it. So there's a little helpfulness on how we should understand the tone of our Lord, who is to be a model for us. Be careful how you interpret that, uh, as it relates to using this language with your own mothers, okay? Now we look at his apparent reluctance to help because he's like, this has nothing to do with me. My hour has not come. Every mom wants to be able to speak to their kids and know that they are going to obey them, right? Obedience is like a first response. It's not a delayed response. It's not a threatened response. Obedience comes from a heart of wanting to please your parents, kids. Jesus understood that he was responsible to provide for his mother and the family, and that would always be a special relationship between he and Mary. But instead of seeing this as his reluctance to obey, I think it demonstrates that Jesus is now informing his mother that his loyalties and his priorities have changed. He is the Son of God, John 1 tells us who's taken on flesh to come into the world. He has now begun his earthly ministry in chapter 1 when John the baptizer says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and sends some of his own disciples to follow him. Jesus has then called other disciples to follow him. He is now focused not on his mother's needs and wishes, but on his father's mission. And he has to remind his mother of that. His priorities have shifted. It will culminate on the cross. But from the very beginning, it's clear that Jesus is not going to be manipulated by other people's agenda for him. He was focused on the will of his father. Even even family ties had to be subordinated to this divine mission. Practically speaking, every Christian parent wrestles with God's plans for their children. You grow up, raise your children, you see them grow up, and you want good things for them. And that may mean living around the corner and down the street. It may mean a successful job. But what if God calls them to go and labor among the poorest and the most marginalized, where it is dangerous? Do we as parents step in and say, no, 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 your loyalty is with me. This is a a sober reminder for us on Mother's Day, 
a time to reflect on the bonds of family and relationships that we, do we understand, do we embrace and cheerfully support God's call upon the lives of our children? Do we want them to see them do what we want or would we actually be rebuked by this passage and say that they need to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness? May the Lord gently rebuke us if this is necessary this morning and turn our hearts to His will. So we see that it's Mary who must adapt, not Jesus. She came to Him as His mother. She expected her son to obey, and she was gently rebuked. Make no mistake about it, there was a gentle rebuke here. She could no longer view Him as her son. She now had to come to Him as the Savior who takes away the sins of the world. And we see this shift. As you look at verse 5, what does she tell the servants there? She says, do whatever He tells you. She came to Him thinking, I need you to do this. He reminds her his plans and purposes are all about the Father's will and mission. The cross is coming. Jesus is already looking to it. And now Mary says, okay, I'm not going to take the the tone of mother knows best. And I'm going to take the tone of let your will be done. You see that shift in verse 5. And perhaps this ought to be a practical reminder for us in the way that we pray. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can fall into the trap of saying, God, I need this. You have to do this. Or God, I want this. Please give it to me. And we approach God by dictating our terms to him. Brethren, let us learn from Mary's example here. It is far better to make our pleas from the perspective of one who is dependent on God rather than this mis guided idea that we can actually control God. Let us humbly approach the throne of grace. Let us lay our requests at His feet, confident that He will indeed work according to His will and good pleasure, and that is a benefit, a real benefit to us. Secondly, I think Mary's statement reflects not only her confidence in Jesus, but this realization that faith and work go hand in hand. You know, let go and let God, not good theology. Trust God and serve God, better theology. And what does Mary say to the servants? Do what he tells you to do. She understands that there's this element of faith and work that go hand in hand. And so as we pray and approach God for help and for wisdom and for understanding, let our prayers be accompanied by obedience to the word that's already been revealed to us. You know, uh, so you're dating somebody and the Bible has clear boundaries and standards for the Christian as it relates to conduct and the treating of someone of the opposite sex. We can't just say, I want to marry her and so therefore I'm going to do this now. That's not obedience. Even as we pray, God, give me the wisdom. Is she the one? Is he the one? We need to have our prayers accompanied by obedience and our faith by a willingness to work. Even as we, quote, wait upon the Lord, there's no passivity in the Christian life. We have much to be doing as we watch God reveal His will. 
Well, I've labored on this a little bit of time, so let's jump to verses 6 through 10. Jesus responds to Mary's new posture by honoring her requests and meeting the need. John tells us there were six stone water jars that were nearby for the Jewish rite of purification. Now, this means nothing to us. Six big pots. You could have put plants in them for all I know, right? Like, okay. Well, in fact, what this shows us is for the Jewish tradition, they stated that your hands needed to be ceremonially washed before you eat a meal. And the vessel that you got the water out of also had to be ceremonially clean. Stone was far better than clay in doing that and serving that purpose. And so here we have another reminder that as a wedding feast among Jewish people, that all these guests would need to wash their hands and follow the rituals as they prepare to feast. John also adds this caveat that each jar held in our ESV 20 or 30 gallons. Why, why does he give us these details? Well, I think it highlights two things in the, in the immediate. Uh, and the 20 to 30 gallons may be a little misleading. Uh, from my digging in and studying, it varied quite a bit. Um, anywhere from 100 to 150 gallons of water for what? To wash hands? Well, to me, that indicates this was a pretty large event with a lot of guests. I think we have a little more than 150 in here today. 120, 150 gallons of water to just wash our hands in order that we could sit down and eat would indicate a large gathering. Secondly, I think by telling us how much water these jars could contain also shows us the enormity of the miracle. Guys, he turned that much water into wine. That's a lot. I've had wine once or twice in my life. Not a fan. Uh, maybe it was bad. I don't know. It's just grape juice is okay. But 150 gallons of wine, that's a lot. So his instructions, as you noticed in verses 7 and 8, are pretty unremarkable. He just basically tells the guys, go fill these things up with water. You know, the well that you've been pulling water out of to put in the jars so that everybody could cleanse themselves, the jars are empty and we're out of wine. And all this is meant to prime us that there is something more significant going on than just that event. That there's a wedding with a lot of guests and they've run out of something. The lack of wine and the fact that a purification had to take place shows us a real spiritual need that we have. Wine was the symbol of joy. It was to have abundant wine was a sign of blessing and favor with God. And a feast like this, an occasion like this, was a, the, it was a right time to drink wine and to enjoy this occasion. But the fact that they don't have what they need and the fact that they're not even clean enough to enter this indicates something morally about us. It gets expanded on as we look at verses 13 through 25, but let me just keep going here. Jesus does something that's just so common. He instructs them to fill the jars with water, draw it out, and take it to the MC of the wedding. And they did. And the wedding crisis was averted. And guess who knows what happened? The servants and Jesus' disciples. 
It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus did something like this, a miracle like this. John 1.3 says all things were made through him. One commentator wrote, the all-creating word cannot be held ransom by the constraints of his own creation. Listen to this. The modest water saw its God and blushed. Isn't that something? What a word picture. John tells us what's so important about this event in verses 11 and 12. It was the first sign that showed Jesus' glory, but what does it reveal? It shows us they ran out of wine and they needed pots for purification, that very thing I was just talking about. The water represents the old order of Jewish law and custom. You've got to wash your hands to be ceremonial clean under the law, under the Jewish tradition. And Jesus takes these pots for purification and he turns them into occasions for abundant joy. He's saying the old has passed away, behold the new has come. He is giving good gifts to his people. He's not just giving them cheap wine, you know the box stuff? He provides, according to the MC of this, the best wine this guy's ever tasted and you held it to the end? This is mind-blowing. Jesus is painting a picture here, John is, by putting these events in this order to show us not only has the old Jewish order and law and custom passed away and it's been replaced with something better. Water is turned to wine. But then we also see that those symbols are being used in a marriage supper. There's actually a messianic banquet taking place. Everybody else thought they showed up for the wedding of these two people, and Jesus is like, folks, this is just a shadow of that great feast we're going to have in my kingdom someday. This is a foretaste of glories divine. The superiority, superiority of the wine Jesus provided indicates the superiority of this new messianic age that he is introducing. And we are told in verse 11 that the disciples believed in him. By this first sign, Jesus revealed his glory. He is the glory of the only one, begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. His glory is ultimately going to be revealed in his cross, in his resurrection, and in his exaltation. But every step along the way in John's gospel, he wants us to understand that these are all foreshadowing of a greater glory that's coming. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, writes, the servants saw the sign, but not the glory. The disciples, by faith, perceived Jesus' glory behind the sign, and they put their faith in him. Verse 12 tells us the scene is shifting. We're still in the region of Galilee, but we go from uh, Cana to about 16 miles east uh, to a city called Capernaum. And what we saw in verses 1 through 12 is that these Jewish rites of purification, they hint at the fact that we are all ceremonially unclean. But as we come to verses 13 through 22, we find out that we are not just ceremonially unclean, we are morally defiled. Jesus starts with the issues of purification from sin, and then he shifts to the offering of true worship. 
He goes to the temple and he confronts spiritual apostasy. He declared himself as the one who could cleanse the temple, the one who needed to oversee that cleansing. And in fact, the one in whom we would all need to turn our eyes upon and look at him. So as we go to verse 13, we see another Jewish ritual taking place. It's the Feast of Passover. It was celebrated on the 14th day of the Jewish month called Nisan. Basically, the end of our March and the beginning of our April. It commemorated the night with Jews being delivered by God from the slave, uh, the slaveholders in Egypt, when the death angel passed over their homes that were uh, painted with blood on the doorpost of that lamb that was sacrificed, where any doorpost that didn't have that lamb's blood, that home was visited by the death angel and the firstborn was taken. So this, this is the feast that Jesus is now going to. He's going to leave Galilee in verse 12, and he's going to head to Judea and go to Jerusalem to observe Passover. Passover was followed by another seven-day festival called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And what happens if you read through the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what's called the Synoptic Gospels, you'll see that they put this event, Jesus cleansing the temple, way late in Jesus' ministry. In fact, it's the Passover feast he will have the week he's crucified and dies. John front loads it here in the very beginning of his gospel, and yet he will talk about three different Passovers that Jesus attended in his public ministry. Who's right? Well, let's not think of it as who's right or wrong in the order. John's obviously put it here because he wants to make a point. I think it serves his argument that Jesus He's making the point that Jesus is the Messiah that we need to believe in. We saw in John 20 is the whole summary of the Gospel of John. These things have been written in order that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing in Him, you might have eternal life. That's the whole reason I'm writing this to you. So John wants us to see up front, Jesus is so unique that he starts his ministry, or John's record of his ministry. John wants his audience to know that Jesus is the Messiah that we need to believe in. So he cleansed the temple in verses 14 through 16. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, what is this? Well, Understand that Passover was a feast to be celebrated only in Jerusalem. So if you were a Jew and you got relocated because um, a job, no, not really, because you disobeyed God and he kicked you out of the land and so you grew up in Babylon, Iraq, in Turkey, in Greece, or Italy, and now you are wanting to observe the Passover, you would have to travel back to Jerusalem to do that. And so you have different coinage. You have no need to carry a herd of animals with you. Its convenience is that you would buy the sacrifices there at the temple in order to give them to the Lord. And the temple required a certain type of coinage, a shekel that was made of such a purity that it was real good silver. And so whatever coins you had from other parts of the Roman Empire, you would have to trade that in, like going into another custom, uh, using the euro or the yen or something else. 
And you would then be guaranteed that the silver that's going into the temple treasury would be a good quality silver. So, interestingly, Jerusalem's up on a hill, a mountain. There's a little valley called the Kidron Valley. And across that valley are the slopes that lead up to the Garden of Gethsemane or the Mount of Olives. Now, the livestock used to be kept on that slope when it first started as a convenience to the traveler. Purchase your cow here. Purchase your goat here. Purchase your pigeons here. Your sheep here. And then you would lead it in and give it to the priest. What we see here in, in John 2 is that they had left the valley behind and now they were occupying space in the actual temple. Now, we know there was like this holy of holies, the most sacred place nobody could go to but the high priest one time a year. But then it kind of works out concentric spaces from there. There was a place where Jewish men could enter. And then further out, there was a place where women could come, but they could go no further. And then there was a place further out that was called the Court of the Gentiles, where you and I could go in and we could worship the God of Israel, but we were allowed to go no further. And guess where all of these smelly, stinky, noisy animals and all this trade was taking place? It was in the Court of the Gentiles. And you know what that means? It's like putting a rock in, in water. It occupies space, and it will push the water out of the top of that glass if it's too full. So the Gentiles can't even come in to worship because the Jews have gotten so ridiculous that they think they are doing a good service or they are just simply lazy or selfish and they don't want the Gentiles in there, that they have brought noise and trade into the place that is, as according to the Synoptic Gospels, to be a house of prayer. You can't pray over the noise of saying, hey, my cow is better and it's cheaper. No, my cow's better. Hey, we're selling pigeons today. We got a deal for you. You get two for a buck. You can't really pray when you hear those guys hawking their wares and you hear the noise of the animals and there's all this noise and pushing around. It's no longer a place for worship. This is the heart of Jesus' lament and the cause for his actions. He then moves in and he drives all this out. The synoptics say that he called them robbers, that this was to be a house of prayer. John doesn't call them robbers. He doesn't mention prayer. He just says, you ought not to make my house, my father's house, a house of trade. So again, what do we do with John having a different record than the synoptics? We recognize that John is doing this on purpose. And I think we don't have a problem believing that whether or not they were extorting and inflating prices on the livestock, I don't think that was the issue here. Maybe it was. But really, who is being robbed? Is it the people who are buying stuff to give it to the Lord? Or is it God who's being robbed of the praise of His people? Is it the people who are being robbed of being still in the presence of their God? So, maybe in your life groups you can hammer out whether it's legit for us to sell books in the Mission Cafe or t-shirts that say South Canyon on them. I don't think it is, as long as we're not disrupting what we do here as a church 
and distracting from the things of the Lord. John then goes on in verse 17 and 18 to record uh, both a biblical reference and Jewish opposition. Driven by an all-consuming zeal is what we see in verse 17. His disciples remembered this, that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, we don't know, did they remember it right then at that moment? Was the Scripture so on the tip of their tongues that they thought about it then? Or was this John writing after the fact, after, again, the resurrection, as he will say down in verse 22? We don't know. I'm not sure that it really matters. The point is that Psalm 69.9 is quoted here. And what's the significance of that? Well, in Psalm 69, I'm glad that you asked, it's important for us to understand what was going on there to see how it applies here. In Psalm 69, the psalmist is crying out against those enemies of him Uh, that are oppressing him. And in fact, they are upset that the temple is a place of worship for him, that it's his focus. They attacked him. They They reject his commitment to the temple. Jesus is crying out against the disrespectful manner in which the temple is being used. It's not for this reason and this purpose. It's for worship. And you guys are turning it into trade. The Old Testament psalmist is is perfectly suited for this, this quote. He also was yearning for a righteousness to be restored in the temple, and he was being persecuted because he believed this. So Jesus' opposition comes quickly. And it's ironic that the very people, the Sadducees, who were the ones that were of the, the tribe of Levi, the legitimate line of priests, Most of them were in the the form of the political party of the Sadducees. Even those that weren't, the Levites, the very ones who were responsible to guard the holiness of God and to protect people from violating it at the cost of their own lives. Those that controlled the temple grounds who were supposed to be teaching people in the temple. It's those very people who are so upset at Jesus even though they had been invited into a right relationship with God, even though they'd been given a unique place to worship Him, they turned it into a noisy market. And they demand in verse 18, where did you get this authority? By what signs are you doing for us to show us these things? And what's so significant about this isn't that they said, hey, you're not supposed to be here. I'm sorry, sir. You need to move out. You don't have any authority to do this. They're not asking Him... Uh, show us your credentials. Did, did one of the other priests tell you to do this? They're actually not even happy about the fact that Jesus is recalibrating things to a right thing, that he's restoring good worship. They are blinded by their anger. They miss the opportunity to say, thank you. What you're doing is actually good. Nobody's had the courage to do it. Thanks for stepping up. They totally miss the morality of Jesus' actions just as they missed the morality and holiness of God when they turned his temple into a market. And instead of seeing what he had done for its rightness, they are demanding a physical demonstration. Prove that you have the authority to do this. 
So Christian, here's, here's an interesting thought. When you do the right thing and are opposed for it, don't be surprised when people are not interested in the moral rightness of what you're doing. They're just frustrated that you didn't check with them first. You didn't follow the process and the procedures. You didn't fill out the right form. I could tell you a horrible story about the IRS guys in our town, but I'm praying they'll listen to this and be converted. You know, like I went up there literally on tax day and they could have helped me. And they said, there's all the stuff. And I went home and then I realized as I'm online digging through all this, oh, they can help me. And I go up and they're like, ah, we just closed. If you would have asked us earlier, we could have helped you. But now our system shut down and I'm like, bless you, bless you. Where's the help, you know? So don't be surprised when people are more concerned about their power and their processes than what is right. And understand that that's an indication of a real need, a real deficiency. These authorities, they could have removed Jesus. They had temple guards, but they didn't go that route. They knew that Jesus wasn't trying to create chaos, but they asked the wrong question. Do some kind of a trick so that we'll know that you're from God. They want to witness a sign, a miracle, some kind of stunt. They want Jesus, like Mary before him, they want Jesus to act according to their purposes. And Jesus says, no, that's not the game I play. My time hasn't come, but I'll tell you this. You destroy this temple, pointing to himself, and in three days I will raise it up. If you want a sign, you come and, you come and see me after the resurrection. You guys will kill me, and I will raise myself. That will be a sign to show you that I am trying to restore true worship to the holy God. That will show you that I have the authority to cleanse my father's house and to put away uh, this whole temple system and to replace it with this temple system pointing to himself. That worship here, as he says to the woman of Samaria in John 4, it won't be on the temple. It won't be on the temple in Jerusalem. And the spirit uh, worship won't be on Mount Gezerim where the Samaritans think it is. Instead, it will be a worship of spirit and truth focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Don't allow yourself either to act like these Jews did and demanding wickedness and ignoring what is right and good. Now, we could go into whether or not we're supposed to clean house like Jesus did. Let me just say, um, Jesus is unique. So the way he talked to his mother is not the way we ought to talk to our mothers. He knew what he was about, and he was on a mission that was unique to him. Jesus could cleanse a temple. We have no authority to cleanse. Jesus could do away with social customs and traditions because he is the thing to which all these traditions pointed to. He was the fulfillment of that. He is not like us. So we don't bomb abortion clinics. We don't trash homosexuals and LGBTQ and gender confused, dysphoric people online. We are not here to tear down systems and processes. We are here to point people to the one who can change us all, the one who can cleanse us all. 
This is his unique role and purpose. He's declared himself in verses 19 through 21 to be the new temple of God, the place and person of worship. His answer seems to hit them as not quite what they expected. What's the sign? Oh, Jesus says, verse 19, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it. Uh, Wait a second. Are we still talking about this temple, the one that Herod's been working on for 46 years? No, we're not, which is why John clues us in as his readers in verse 21. Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. And then John adds this caveat that even John and his disciples didn't get this until Jesus rose from the dead. And then their faith is confirmed. Let's jump to the last few verses. And what we see here is simply just a call for each and every one of us. The significance of Jesus' first coming and second coming are alluded to in this text. He changed the water into wine. He cleansed the temple. And in both events, he is establishing his authority and his ministry. And both of these anticipate his future work. To attend a marriage feast... And to cleanse the temple were among the first acts of our Lord's ministry at his first coming. John orders it this way. To purify the whole visible church and hold a marriage supper will be among his first acts when he returns for his church. Isn't that something? Everything is building toward that day. So in these two signs and two scenes, we see that Jesus has the power to give abundant joy to those who embrace his cleansing from sin and respond to his call for true worship. Simply, what are you going to do with this? Jesus declares himself to be the temple, the very thing which you can know God and relate to God, the space where that divine world is brought near to this natural world, where the God of all eternity draws near to his people. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in this passage, we see the disciples believe the things they see about Jesus. Real faith, it changes them. We see, as we look at verse 23, many believed in his name when they saw the signs. Well, so are you saying there's tons of converts going on? But notice, the context tells us that their faith was more enamored with the signs than true saving faith, true conversion, because verse 24 says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He knew they were just about the stuff So there's three categories of responders in this text. The disciples who believed in him. What he said about himself. There's the people who are enamored with the signs and they're like, dude, he's unique. But they don't trust him. They don't come to him, cleanse me from my sin. I need to be reconciled to God. You're the only way. And then there's people who are just outright opposing Jesus who challenge his authority, who try to make him do what they want. What is keeping you from believing in the only one who can bring abundant joy and cleansing from sin? Lord, we pray that you would help us
for those that may be here today who are struggling with the call to repentance and faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, that you would tear down every stronghold that separates them from yourself and draw them near. We pray that we would let nothing keep us from responding to you. Our pride, the confession of sin to those that we've wronged, wronged, whatever it may be, the the moral truth and the righteousness and the purity and the goodness of God that we're calling to, and we shrink back from it. We don't want to be in the light. We'd rather stay in the darkness. Father, whatever it may be, please remove those barriers. We lift up Jesus so that men and women and children will be drawn to Him as they see Him. And we pray, Lord, that as we look at the kingdom work that Jesus establishes here, we long for the day when our joy will be made sight, when our faith will be realized, where you take the emptiness of this world, the the depletion of wine and water, the, the defilement of your own temple, and you make it new and clean. And then you bring abundant joy to all who turn to you. Lord, strengthen your people. We appreciate so much who you are and the way that you teach us through your word. We bless your name as a body this morning, Lord. We thank you for the Savior that you sent into this world. And we pray all this in his glorious and powerful name. Amen.